you'll find it helpful to have Lamentations open in front of you. Should a believer always be cheerful? There are some schools of thought that a believer must always sort of have a smile on their face, that they must always be cheerful and chipper. But it won't surprise you from what we've just read that that's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, we are to be joyful. Yes, we're not to be grumpy misery guts. But that doesn't mean there are occasions, not occasions, when we won't cry our eyes out, when we won't be profoundly sad and tearful. How can we say that for sure? Well, because we see it in the book of Lamentations. We see it there, plain to see, as this man laments over Jerusalem. We'll also see it, as we'll see, in the life of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was the most joyful man who ever lived. We know that because he had all the fruit of the Spirit to the max. And yet, there are occasions when Jesus was upset, when he wept. And Lamentations is an extended lament, a godly one, a righteous one. A godly sadness over the state of things uh, as they are at the time. What we have in the book of Lamentations is five poems lamenting the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. The events which were prophesied and then experienced by Jeremiah the prophet, which we saw last week. The book is anonymous, but it's been traditionally ascribed to him. That's why it is where it is in our Bible, uh, after the book of Jeremiah. And the five poems all have their different nuances and differences as we go through. It does have the... Uh, the, the feeling of someone who's been there, who's actually seen this. Poems 1 to 4 are written from the perspective of one person lamenting this disaster. Poem 5 is written as a community lament, as though after reading through the first four, the rest of the people join in with the lament. Poems 1, 2 and 4, and chapters 1, 2 and 4 for that reason, are acrostic. That means each verse begins with the next letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You probably did those sort of things at school where you sort of each line starts with a, a different letter. But it gives the book a bizarrely ordered feel. Like someone looking back and observing the terrible events. There's pain and there's rawness, but it's as though the author is trying to make sense of it. He's trying to put it in some sort of category, put it in some sort of order. It's not just haphazardly put down. The author has reflected on the whys and the wherefores of this disaster. But that idea of a, a sort of A to Z, if you like, here, also gives it a sense of completion. An A to Z of disaster and suffering. And this is what must be understood from what's happened in those circumstances. Poem 3, which we have read to us before, is right in the centre. And it is acrostic but in sets of three. So it's sort of like A, B, A, 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 then B, 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 C, 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 if that was in English. So it's 66 verses long. It's a little bit longer than the other ones, but that has the effect then of slowing time right down. It sort of allows you to reflect even more as you go through the book. And it stands at the center of the book, a prominent place in Hebrew thought. It's really the heart of the book, and we'll look at it in more detail in our points. The final poem, the fifth one, number five, is 22 verses long, same as all the other ones, but it's not an acrostic. So it's not in alphabetical order. 
As I mentioned, it's also a communal one as well. So this may be written sometime after the other ones, but certainly by the same author as you sort of follow it through, it fits with the book. But it gives you a sense of a return to normality, a sort of resolution to the book. Here's what most people do, uh, what the people must do now that the disaster is over. So that's the sort of structure of the book, that's the sort of bird's eye view of the book. But what about the themes? Well, they're going to form our three points uh, this evening. That's not the points. <laughs> that's Jeremiah. Okay. Um, the first point is suffering and grief. That's the first sort of theme of the book. So let me give you a snippet. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her, and this is the day we have longed for. Now we see it, we see it. Or as our section had it in uh, the one before, beginning of chapter three, you can read that sort of lamenting that he's given of the suffering and grief. All the way through there is this weeping and lamenting for Jerusalem. I guess the clues to the name, isn't it, with a name like Lamentations. But the book confronts us with the horrific suffering of the people of Jerusalem under the hands of the Babylonians. Things that I'm not comfortable talking about in front of children because it would upset them. They're so horrific and they're listed there in the book. But such were the realities of war in those days. We forget that even in the era of conflict nowadays, we've been influenced by our Christian worldview. You know, how do you treat prisoners of war? What is and isn't acceptable to do in order to win? We have some sort of rules now in a way that they didn't really have rules then. Nothing was off the cards. And so the people suffered tremendously. And in the face of that, the author weeps. He cries. He wails. And this is despite the fact that he's clear throughout that he knows that the destruction is deserved. He knows what they've done that means that they should be getting this treatment, but still, he weeps. And there's no hint that this is the wrong response to that. And from that we can understand that suffering should be wept over, whether it's God-inflicted or not. Jesus mirrors this in Luke 19 as he weeps over Jerusalem and its forthcoming destruction. He is clear that they deserve what is coming to them. They've not realised the hour of their visitation. And yet he weeps over their destruction. And it's hard to hold those things together sometimes, say, knowing that something is deserved and yet knowing that it is immensely sad. But we must. Whilst there is a lot of suffering in the New Testament, Lamentations is not quoted in the New Testament. But it is experienced in those sorts of laments that we see like the Lord Jesus lamenting. We also see it in his own sufferings. The wagging of the heads and the gloating over Jerusalem is again mirrored at the cross as people wag their heads and gloat over Jesus. The suffering of Jerusalem was for their own sin, but the suffering of Jesus was for our sin, not his own. So Jesus on the cross in a way becomes like the Jerusalem here, like his people, bearing their sin on himself. 
And we see people weeping and lamenting over his death too. In Hebrews, though, uh, in Hebrew, the name of the book isn't actually Lamentations. They normally go by the first word of the book. And in this case, it's how. So they have this sort of in their list of things that how. And that really is one of the questions the book is answering. How could God have let this happen? Such immense suffering and pain. And yet our second theme tells us why. So our second theme is sin and repentance. Sin and repentance. The book is clear throughout the whole reason that for Jerusalem's horrific suffering was its sin. Suffering is not always directly related to sin. The book of Job teaches us that, doesn't it? But sometimes it is connected. And here it's very connected. So Lamentations 1 verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captive before the foe. Or Lamentations 1.14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into their hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Or Lamentations 4.13. This was the sin of, the, of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed uh, in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Right the way from the leaders all the way down to the people, Judah has sinned. They've transgressed the covenant God made with them at Sinai. We could have had that as our first point, couldn't we, up there on the, the wall? That's what Jeremiah was telling them. But now here they face the consequences. What we're seeing is actually all this suffering, all this thing has been imposed by God as punishment of their sin. But the author also presents in part the remedy, repentance. So Lamentations 3, 40 and 41. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. You see, the book doesn't just present the problem, it actually starts to present the solution. They must repent of their old ways and return to the Lord. They've gone astray and now they must come back. So when we're suffering, it's always worth asking the question, is there something that I need to repent of? Now, of course, there will never be a time when we don't need to repent of something. And it won't necessarily mean that the thing, that the sin in our life is the cause of our suffering. Again, we see that in Job. But bearing all that in mind, it is a good question to ask. In part, because it's always a good question to ask, isn't it? Am I harboring sin in my life? Is there something keeping me from fellowship with the Lord? Is there some old sin slipping back into my life? Is there some new sin that I never thought I struggled with coming in? Repentance is what's presented to us as the solution. So the answer with New Testament glasses on is first the cross of Christ. Jesus has taken our punishment. But then in our experience, it's repentance. We turn from that sin or idol and turn back to the Lord in faith. So they must return to the Lord. They must turn from their sinful, rebellious ways and come back to God. And the book ends with a plea for restoration in light of their repentance, for a return for the people back into God's favour. And that brings us to our last point, forgiveness and faithfulness. We had this read to us before, but it's worth reading again, right at the centre of the book, in chapter 3, verses 21 onwards. 
But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. In the midst of all the suffering and grief stands God's steadfast love, his covenant love, his compassion. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The leaders of Jerusalem may fail, the buildings may crumble, but the Lord's steadfast love continues and will continue. His mercy is new every day, every morning. It's in God's nature to be merciful. It's not that they haven't sinned, they have. It's not that they didn't deserve their punishment, they did. It wasn't that there wasn't extenuating circumstances, there wasn't. But when we come to God in repentance, because of Jesus, our great mediator here, his work cast backwards through time, we can know forgiveness. We can know restoration. We can experience his mercy every morning. A new start. Like manna in the wilderness, God's mercy is there each day, sufficient for each day. And God's faithfulness for them meant that although they were burned by God's wrath, they were not consumed by it. A remnant continued and came back. God kept them, was faithful to them, and ultimately returned them home. He did not utterly reject them, as they talk about at the end, or remain exceedingly angry with them. He did not forget them or forsake them. Why? Because they weren't really that bad? No. Because of his steadfast love and compassion. They may run hot and cold, but God always runs hot. And that means for us that it does always give us a reason to temper our sadness. Because those things are true that we read in the centre here, we have no reason to despair because the Lord is faithful. We have no reason to lose hope in the midst of suffering because his steadfast love is sure and certain. Now that doesn't mean we won't ever be sad or have times of weeping and mourning. But there will always be something there for the believer that can keep us from complete anguish or gloom. We do, as the author does, we call to mind God's faithfulness. And therefore we have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And that can cheer our hearts in the darkest of times, can't it? Not that we'll always be cheerful, but that we'll have no reason to be completely hopeless. And that means that we can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, as we're told in Romans. 
It means that we can take seriously the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. There is space for both, isn't there? As Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So let lamentations speak to you. Don't be afraid to be upset about things, to be sad. But also don't forget the central part that undergirds it all. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and therefore we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, don't expect us to go around with fixed grins on our faces. Father, thank you that in a fallen world, Father, you understand what is going on. Father, even here, where you afflicted your people, Father, you understand the sadness at that suffering. Father, help us to be those who are sad at affliction, who are sad when we see human beings in awful circumstances. But Father, also help us to call to mind your steadfast love. Father, help us never to fall into despair, but to keep remembering your mercy, which is new every morning. Father, pray that that would be our thought every morning ourselves, that you are still merciful today, and that, Father, there is forgiveness and restoration with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.